This is an ABC podcast. Iorana Malo Edamai Bombongini and good morning. I'm Eggy Dupo, your host, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hey, look, hopefully you had a, an amazing weekend. If you were like me, nursing a bit of the hurt of a nation, New Zealand, losing to champions as South Africa in the Rugby World Cup, I totally understand. But congrats to both teams. It was a bit of a nail-biting watch. Uh, on the show today, Pentecost Island has bought the brunt of Cyclone Dola. People are, are very resilient. They don't complain. They get on with it. But it's really hard and you really feel for people, especially who've lost a lot. For the first time ever, a military leader from PNG will become second in command of one of Australia's combat brigades. This appointment, you know, is a testament to the enduring relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea. We share the same, you know, values and what we want, a safe, secure and stable region. And what's the special relationship that the country Hungary has with Papua New Guinea? Well, stay tuned for more on these stories. I'm Aggie Dubon and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though, Fiji's government has come under fire over its decision to vote against a United Nations resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza-Israel conflict. The non-binding resolution was passed by the UN, with 120 countries backing it and 14 countries voting against it, including Pacific Nations Tonga, Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, Papua New Guinea and Fiji, who sided with the United States and Israel. Fiji's main opposition party, Fiji, first condemned the government, saying its decision flies in the face of Fiji's peacekeeping heritage, while a coalition of NGOs say they will protest to force the government to change its mind. So joining us to talk a little bit more about this this morning is a General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, James Bagwan, with that I say, Bolovinaka. Bolovinaka, Aggie, it's good to be with you this morning. Yeah, thank you very much, James, for joining us this morning. Uh, how do you see the government's position on this UN resolution? I mean, did it come as a surprise? Um, I'd like to say yes, but uh, unfortunately we're seeing a, um, a big shift uh, or a gap, uh, increasing gap between what is being said and what is being done. But our concern, of course, from the... Pacific Conference of Churches is that this is, uh, as you mentioned, it's um, it's not just Fiji. We're seeing um, a regional uh, shift uh, taking place, particularly in the context of the geopolitical tug of war that's happening here in the Pacific. Yeah, let me go to this question there, because do you believe Pacific Nations understood what the vote was for? One, we know that it was to save, you know, innocent lives, peace, diplomatic resolution, and of course send aid uh, to those most in need, women and children, But and then it was not to support either side of the conflict. Do you think they understood that? Look, I think the time for when we say our Pacific Island nations don't understand the significance of resolutions is long gone. We are um, you know, we have quite astute um, representatives at the UN. Um, we have um, very capable uh, foreign ministry staff across the region. 
that have been uh, engaged on uh, multiple issues over the last few decades. Uh, you know, difficult conversations and negotiations like uh, climate change. So I don't think this is about understanding an issue. I think it's really coming down to the fact that we're starting to see the the serious influence around um, the geopolitical shifts that are taking place and the impact of the um, um, this geopolitical struggle between um, the U.S. and China. Mm. Well, you know, firstly, there was a statement from Fiji First Party leader Bani Marama saying that this is the first time the country has broken its stance of peacekeeping. So does this go against Fiji's peacekeeping heritage? I would imagine so. I mean, there there are um, um, opportunities or options at place, you know, at the very least, as a member of the non-aligned movement, if they felt that this was a contentious issue, um, the um, the safest way would have been to abstain, um, you know, like Vanuatu did. So we, we did have abstentions from the region. Um, the challenge is that um, it seems as if uh, statements are trying to be made in some kind of way during the way in which we we vote, and we understand that that's that's the pressure that we we start to see at the UN, um, the different types of lobbying taking place, and it's it's of serious concern because um, only just recently our Prime Minister of uh, Fiji spoke in Australia about um, you know uh, a Pacific uh, uh, zone of peace, talking about peace building, peacekeeping. Um, you know, how can we say we are working towards a region of peace when uh, this humanitarian call, this call for a ceasefire, is is um, is voted against? I think it's it's you know we've also seen the Fiji backing down on its um, view of China's political. Uh, I'm sorry, China's human rights, um, and perhaps this is also an indication of how some of the region is uh, shifting in their stance, particularly in the context of West Papua. Why has this issue blown up so much in Fiji, though, while not so much in the other Pacific countries that have voted against the resolution? Well, I think, um, one, we are paying attention uh, to these things. It's obviously, this news came out um, yesterday morning um, on Sunday. Um, you know, um, some of us just happened to um, uh, to to see the news um, over the weekend, um, uh, maybe people were preoccupied, as you mentioned earlier, with the World Cup. Um, um, but uh, you know, I think uh, for civil society, for faith-based groups, those of us who constantly have been reflecting on the the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And here we're specifically focusing, you know, on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the ongoing, um, you know, uh, lives that are being lost as collateral damage. Um, you know, this is a serious concern. War is not just about, uh, you know, we're not also looking just at the human cost, but the environmental cost is is huge as well, because all of this uh, militarization, all of these um, conflicts have a cost on in terms of climate change, the carbon emissions admitted as well. And so, you know, from a holistic point of view, I think we're paying a lot more attention these days. Uh, and, you know, with social media, it's an opportunity for us just to raise our um, our concerns. Mm. So then does the position of the Fiji government, does that put uh, the Fijian peacekeepers in Israel at more of a risk? I think um, our peacekeepers have a reputation um, um, of um, of um, of uh, you know excellence. Um, they have a reputation of uh, being uh, friendly to everyone. 
Um, but I think the whole situation in in um, between Israel and um, and Gaza at the moment, um, that conflict itself is putting all players at risk. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm I'm very concerned about uh, how everyone who's trying their best to to keep keep peace to build peace and um you know those who are struggling to to care for uh, for those affected particularly from a humanitarian perspective will be affected by this at least the resolution passed that's the main thing um and i think that's that's quite significant and even if uh, fiji felt like they needed to uh you know make a stand or other pacific islands um it as you mentioned it is a non-binding resolution it is just an affirmation of a call for for peace um and what is really worrying for us is the pressure that is being placed on pacific island countries that if you are allying with the united states and its allies it means that you take sides against others that's not the pacific that we want but that's the thing often i know many people are saying do you think it's possible to push for peace without taking sides in this conflict I think um, the Pacific has uh, a history of uh, peace building. We know how to negotiate. That's been uh, an important thing that we do. That's what Talano is about. It's about finding uh, a peaceful solution to sit down and have conversations. And if you look at the the role of our peacekeepers, um, you know, since 1970 moving onwards, um, both in um, as the multi-force uh, and observers in, in Sinai and uh, other UN peacekeeping agencies, um, you know, that's been their gift that they are able to, to negotiate, they're able to engage uh, on a personal level. And that's something that we still have as a, as a as a gift from the Pacific, and we need to not just you know uh, talk about it. We actually need to practice it. Uh, Reverend, of course, you know, as being the general secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, like NGOs are saying alongside you that, that you will protest to force the government to change its mind. Is there anything else you are planning to do? Well, I um, I've just recently returned into the country, so I haven't been. I'm not aware of the protest, but this is the role of um, of democracy and uh, democratic movements. I think this is an opportunity for us to, um, you know, talk to our members of parliament. Um, and encourage um, Parliament to take a to take a stand. As I said, in a democracy, we need the lawmakers to to make those decisions. Um, otherwise, we're just um, you know. Um, uh, there, I know there's there's a lot of people who are who are angry about this situation, um, and we have a democratic right to protest. We did on the case of uh, Fukushima. Um, but I think um, we need to really sit down and look at the the strategies. I know there's a lot of people who are um, on taking sides in this um, in this conflict here in in Fiji and in the Pacific. There are those who are pro Israel. There are those who are pro Palestine. And I think what's what's really important is for us to to really talk about um, you know how do we ensure that humanitarian pause takes place and the ceasefire takes place rather than protesting on 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 who is right in in the in the conflict because that's a that's a never ending um, debate the the issue is the the lives that are at stake right now and then again uh, reverend what path should the fijian government have taken with this vote if there was a message for you to say to them this morning well as i you know as i articulated we we are at 
uh, we, we of all people in the Pacific understand the humanitarian crisis that we are facing as a result of climate change. We are talking about irreparable loss of, of, of land and community as a result of rising seas and extreme weather. And so we, we can understand what it means for people to lose whatever land that they're in. We can understand that. We can look at what we're going through and, and multiply that to get that understanding. And for the bulk of our region, we are from a Christian faith. We are called first and foremost to be compassionate. And so we should have acted out of compassion. And if we felt being that we were being pressured um, by the U.S. or others, then that's we had the option to abstain. And so this is very concerning for us. And we need to, to see how we can change that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I just want to say, Vinaka, Reverend, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. No worries. That is Reverend James Bagwan, General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches. A state of emergency has been declared in five out of Vanuatu's six provinces following the damage caused by Cyclone Lola. President Nikinike Vurumbaravu made the declaration after the death toll from last week's cyclone rose to three. Pentecost Island experienced the worst of Cyclone Lola with wind gusts of up to 190 kilometres per hour. Andrew Gray, a teacher at Ramwadi College, says building materials are needed. And he spoke to our reporter Liam Fox shortly after communications to Pentecost were restored. It was quite scary. This was yeah, the, the second major cyclone that's hit us in four years. Um, the first one was Cyclone Harold in April 2020. So we're somewhat experienced at these things now. And yeah, when it became clear that the cyclone was going to be um, serious, everyone looked for yeah, the, the safest building nearby that they could shelter in. Um, I've had a... <laughs> quite a difficult conversation with my wife about, you know, which building are we and the kids least likely to um, get killed in this evening. And the conclusion we came to is that actually our own house is one of the safest ones around. So we sheltered here, but as the wind got intense late at night, we heard the sound of yeah, roofing metal bending and twisting and flying in the wind and things going bang and it turned out that it was it was our neighbor's veranda and our, our neighbor's outdoor kitchen being smashed up but we thought it was our own house we thought it was our own roof starting to come off um and then water started coming through the ceiling um which again it turned out wasn't because our roof had come off but just the sheer force of the wind and rain was pushing water in through cracks under the eaves but we were all all set to uh, jump under the bed with the two children and hide there for the rest of the night when did the, the condition sort of ease and you were able to go outside and have a look around not until morning but the, although it wasn't the most intense cyclone we've ever experienced here it lasted for a really long time even the next morning it was it, the next morning it had calmed down to the point where we felt safe sort of peeking outside but it was there was still wind and rain blowing quite intensely um but it was it was yeah in the morning we were able to see outside and the the world outside had completely changed previously our, our house looked out on through trees and dense foliage now i'm standing outside the house right now and there's yeah there's some a few big trees still standing with slightly bare branches but i can see everything for miles there's just no almost no greenery left
What's the situation for your neighbours and communities nearby? A similar situation? Quite a few people have lost their homes. Um, in most villages, there are some houses still standing, but some that have been destroyed or been rendered completely uninhabitable. So as after every big cyclone, people who've lost their homes are sheltering with neighbours or sheltering in community buildings and looking around to see what they can do for shelter. In some in some cases, houses are only slightly damaged and people can nail back bits of roofing and mop out the, the rainwater and then move back in. In some other cases, I think houses are damaged beyond repair and people will have to try and find the means to rebuild them. What are the needs for people in the wake of the cyclone? Is there a need for things like food, water, temporary shelter? Yes, Temporary shelter, but also permanent building materials. The problem with temporary aid um, is that it tends to become permanent. You know, people give a tarpaulin thinking that someone will um, just shelter under it for a few weeks or um, or months until they've rebuilt their own house, and it ends up becoming their permanent house because people have lost so much um, in some cases that it takes a long time to rebuild everything. In many cases, it's not just houses, it's outdoor toilets, it's garden crops. Most people here are subsistence farmers. There's village water supplies, community buildings, everything has to be brought back online, restored, um, clearing roads too. We've We've been lucky this time. The roads are a lot more passable than they were after the previous cyclone. I think a lot of the trees that would have fallen and blocked the road, had fallen already in the last storm and been cleared. But there's still a bit of work to do there to make roads passable again. And there's just so much to do. The thing about cyclones, everyone here says, you know, people cope, people survive, everyone shelters, and there are very few deaths or injuries. But it just gives a huge amount of work to pe- for people to do. Instead of doing whatever they'd hope to accomplish in the next few weeks and months. They're just going to be picking up pieces and trying to get themselves back to where they were. People cope. People are, are very resilient. They don't complain. They get on with it. But you, it's really hard and you really feel for people, especially people who, who've lost a lot. There's one guy who owns two vehicles and they were both swept away in a flood. And now he's got nothing. And how about the school? How did it fare? The school, um, we have five out of um, 12 or 13 classrooms are out of action. The the roofs flew off. A couple of um, staff had their houses destroyed. We're coping. The, The main thing that we're thankful for here, being a boarding school, is that the students' dormitories are all right. The students are safe in their dorms. So we're looking at doing what we can to bring the the students um, back to school. Um, this is, it's a bit of an unusual situation for students in Vanuatu because this isn't yet cyclone season. This cyclone has come way earlier than big cyclones tend to. And students are getting ready for final exams. I think this is the first time in, in recent history that um, Vanuatu schools have had to work out how to prepare students for exams in the middle of a disaster cleanup. So we're looking how that's going to work in terms of making use of what classrooms we have. But we'll work something out. And you mentioned Harold was the last big one to sweep through there and do some damage. Had the recovery effort from that finished? 
Um, not not entirely, no. Um, some things had only just been rebuilt. Some things had, yeah, still not been rebuilt or were still in, in the process of, of being rebuilt. And psychologically, too, people were still feeling the, the scars of the last one and really not ready to face another. And that's Andrew Gray, a teacher at Nwadi College on Pentecost Island, speaking to Liam Fox. And for more on the damage caused by Cyclone Lola, we're joined by Jamie Brown, the ABC's reporter in Vanuatu and a member of the Vanuatu Broadcasting Television Corporation newsroom. With that, I say good morning, Jamie. Good morning. Hi, Aji. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you, Jamie. Look, a state of emergency has been declared. So what does this mean? So uh, the declaration of a state of emergency simply means that the government is in control to assist uh, people uh, given the scale of a situation that really affects a huge portion of its citizens. Uh, in this case, the aftermath of Cyclone Lola, which made the government uh, declaring a SOE effective in uh, five provinces of Vanuatu that are greatly affected by Cyclone Lola, which is uh, Torba, Panama, Sanma, Malamba and Sheva, that are now uh, recognized as uh, disaster areas under the SOE that uh, needs immediate response or support uh, from the government. And uh, the state of emergency is effective for six months. Wow, six months, okay. And do we know, uh, unfortunately, we heard the reports of three casualties. I'm wondering, has there been any more that we know that have been reported on that? So, yeah, um, there's been um, three casualties uh, reported, um, as, uh, as um, but uh, after, uh, there's also injuries uh, reported in from the Ambram Island here in um, Malampa. So um, these are the uh, casualties that um, uh, impact from the cyclone. Now, I understand that an aerial surveillance was carried out towards the end of last week. Um, what are authorities saying about the extent of that damage? Well, um, uh, from the aerial surveillance from the government and also the NDEMO, um, there's uh, assessment that uh, there's a wide scale of uh, damages from the northern areas. And um, um, also we have the dis- response from the clusters, such as uh, disaster clusters, such as WASH, and uh, they have been activ- activated to do assessments since last week and throughout the weekend. Uh, so what we heard is that some assessments should have been made already and submitted so that emergency response should begin this week onwards. Uh, people are really in need of shelters uh, from the uh, from the scale of the cyclone and food given um, that uh, the cyclone had destroyed um, everything in its wake. So the government would have to speed up things to cover grounds. Yeah. Has there been an estimate, you know, on the cost of damage? Uh, because we understand the Australian government has now provided an initial $800,000. That's including shelter, water purification supplies as its immediate support. Do you feel like that's going to be enough to to start off? Well, uh, given that we, we we just gone through the twin cyclone from uh, earlier this um, March from this year, but um, uh, and people are still recovering from the uh, damages, and uh, given the the money, the the funds from the international partners, I think uh, they still we will still need more for uh, from that from support so that uh, people would fully um, recover from the cyclone. And have communications been restored uh, to all the provinces or areas affected by the cyclone? What information has actually come back? So um, both uh, the two networks, uh, Digicel and Fortifone, are already up from the affected areas uh, in the northern area. So um, we actually um, 
the, the communication had been restored uh, since uh, last week on Friday and uh, people are able to connect back from their families. Look, what happens to the school year in the areas that are hit by the cyclone? Well, uh, so somehow despite the damages in the northern affected areas, uh, schools are, are to be resumed on the 27th of October, which is last Friday, as 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 per instruction from the Ministry of Education here, especially schools in Torpa, which is far north of the country, and also uh, Sheva, we uh, we and uh, Tavia down south. But uh, school principals are mentioned, uh, as I mentioned, from the provinces can fill an assessment form ASAP if the uh, school facilities is damaged for the for the ministry to know of their situation. Uh, and I give Benama and Malamba most affected from the cyclone uh, that school facilities are completely damaged. As far as I'm concerned, they hadn't received any instruction yet from the education ministry. But uh, the ministry had announced on Friday last week that examination dates are not changed, so uh, students are to be back in schools and started um, necessary preparation for the, for their due exams. Also, I'm sure you're aware Vanuatu has been hit by, you know, the Category 4 or 5 cyclones before. How are people comparing Cyclone Lola uh, considering the past cyclones? Mm. Well, it's a five-category cyclone that... Um, that you mentioned eventually reduced as it moved down Wednesday and Thursday. So one can imagine the scale of damage a Category 5 cyclone is capable of as seen in 2015 when Cyclone Palm hit. And it's all out devastating, relieving the situation again. Uh, people, especially in the northern provinces, completely losing everything that can be claimed as their property, from uh, houses to gardens to contaminated water sources that they use for consumptions, and as, as far as uh, also losing a family member. And as you mentioned, uh, we we just re- uh, received reports confirm on Friday that three people lost their lives, and uh, which is an old woman over seventy years of age and a young pregnant woman. Um, it's just sad for the family. So yeah, people will will still keep talking about that, and um, it's 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 all devastating, sad. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose once everything sort of rolls out, uh, deliveries. How, how soon are we expecting um, international support to come through? So yeah, um, as um, we 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 also received um, this last week, we received some international support from the Australian government and also uh, from other donor partners. We um, and um, right now they're doing they they conducting assessments with uh, from the damages that uh, this Lola has caused. And um, this week we should be seeing a rollout of. Um, um, uh, response supports uh, from international uh, partners. Awesome. Jamie, thank you very much for your time this morning and take care. Thank you. That is Jamie Brown, the ABC's reporter in Vanuatu, member of the Vanuatu Broadcasting uh, Broadcasting rather Television Corporation newsroom. Stay tuned because up next shortly it is your news rep with producer Talia Aulitia right here on Pacific Beat. What's it like for those on the front lines of science across the Pacific? Come find out on our new series, Pacific Scientific. Join us for Midnight Hunts. Put this one right there. <laughs> I didn't even see that one. Trek to remote villages. Is there someone giving birth? Yes. And climb up volcanoes. We're standing seven metres above where your home was. Get a glimpse of science's lives across the region. Pacific Scientific, Mondays at 3.30pm PNG time. Right here on ABC Radio Australia. Hold the front page. That's it. It is that time to head around the region and get the latest with our news rep here with producer Talia Oliti. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah. Aggie. <laughs> Good weekend. 
She <laughs> sounds very tired. <laughs> yes. It's all right, but you're here. Uh, we've got a couple of stories we want to get through. Uh, Bougainville, wow, gets its first female MP. Yeah, the Post Courier is reporting that Francesca Samosa Samesso has become the first female MP for Bougainville in the Papua New Guinea National Parliament after she was declared the winner in the North Bougainville by election. The Pungu Party candidate, who was declared the winner with nearly 15,000 votes over a former North Bougainville. Bougainville MP Lao Tao Atoy. The by-election was forced after the death of MP William Naki. Now, Ms. Samosa is a well-known name in Bougainville politics as she was one of the first three women to win a reserve seat in the first election for an autonomous Bougainville government in 2005. She's long been a campaigner for women's representation in Pacific politics and when it was announced she was running, President James Marape supported her bid, saying that they need to have more women elected to the National Party. Parliament. And speaking of seat quotas, the Samoan Parliament has approved a recommendation to clarify the wording of that 10% quota for women's seats in Samoa's constitution and how it's calculated. The recommendation came from a parliament committee looking into the political aftermath of the 2021 election crisis, where the interpretation caused many a headache, as you might remember. <laughs> Absolutely, I do remember. Mm. Uh, let's hit on the bus driver of a fatal crash in Fiji has been charged. Yeah, the Fiji Times is reporting the 21-year-old driver will appear in front of the Suva Magistrates Court today, charged with one count of dangerous driving occasioning death. 23-year-old Shayel Wati died after she was allegedly hit by a bus at a pedestrian crossing on Stinson Parade in Suva on Thursday afternoon. Ms Wati, who has been described by her family as hardworking and friendly, will be laid to rest today. Now, the company that manages the bus, Nasset Bassese Limited says they were cooperating fully with authorities and then, and said that they would also re-examine internal procedures to prevent future incidents from occurring. That's crazy. Uh, look, just say rest and love to Miss Watty for that story. Uh, but to some sports news. Exactly. If you don't know, and I'm sure you do, the Springboks are the Men's Rugby World Cup champions for a record fourth time after a one-point win over the All Blacks. Now, a lot of people are very upset about that match that saw All Blacks captain Sam Kane sent off. And among those upset are former All Blacks Richie McCaw and Israel Dagg, who have not been quiet in letting their displeasure with the officiating be known. Also making headlines today after a disastrous World Cup campaign, Wallabies coach Eddie Jones has quit just 10 months into a five-year deal. Jones was appointed on a five-year deal earlier this season, but won just two of nine matches. Now to the Pacific Rugby League Championships. In the Pacific Bowl, Fiji Barty produced their biggest ever win over the Papua New Guinea Kumuls in front of a humbled Port Moresby crowd. Fiji overpowered Papua New Guinea 43-16. They'll, of course, see each other again this weekend at the Santo Stadium in Port Moresby for the Pacific Bowl final. Meanwhile, in Melbourne for the Pacific Cup, the Kangaroos beat the Kiwis in a tense 36-18 clash. The sides will meet again for the final in Hamilton on Saturday. And the Kiwi Ferns have pulled off a massive upset, which saw the Aussie Gillaroos lose their first match in seven years. New Zealand pulling off a shock 12-6 victory. Now, there is no women's final or third test between the, tw- between the teams and with a 
a win apiece. The sides also finished level on points. And I know that that has been a contention for a lot of um, advocates for the women's game that say, hey, they should get a third and final (laughs) to avoid situations just like this. It's a hard ask sometimes, Mm. isn't it, for us women? But Mm -hmm. thank you very much, Dahlia, for joining us this morning for our news wrap. Hey, look, still to come on the show, what significance does the country Hungary play in the Pacific nation of Papua New Guinea? And scientists have discovered newly identified cold water reefs. Uh, You've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. Nijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenerao Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijam Footy stars. Nijam Footy. Nijam Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. For the first time, a military leader from Papua New Guinea will become second in command of one of Australia's combat brigades. Defence analysts say both nations are set to benefit from the historic appointment and signals a recommitment from Australia to its Pacific neighbours. Rachel Merritt reports. Chanting as they march through countryside with weighted packs. Troops from Australia's 3rd Brigade take part in physical training with their Papua New Guinea counterparts. Exercises like this, which was held in PNG earlier this year, occur annually between the two nations as part of a long and ongoing defence relationship. But in a bid to further shore up ties, a PNG military leader will become second in command of an Australian combat brigade. Lieutenant Colonel Boniface Aruma will become the first foreign military officer to be appointed to such a senior role in the history of the Australian Army. Next year, he'll assume the position of Deputy Commander of 3rd Brigade in Townsville, Australia's largest garrison city. For us back home, it's a big deal. It's, it's, it's the most senior appointment that we have ever exported overseas. We've got instructors uh, and staff appointments all over the Australian Army uh, in, in, in Australia, as well as Navy and Air, but they're all at the major and uh, captain ranks and below. But this is really a giant leap for us uh, as an organisation. Lieutenant Colonel Aruma has served in PNG's Defence Force for 27 years. He says the military capabilities of both nations are set to benefit from his involvement in high command at the brigade. Like the positives are the effects that it generates at the strategic level. Because obviously when I go back, I'll be operating out of the strategic level. And the thinking and the thought process, uh, uh, obviously, um, yeah, the exposure, the networking that I bring back to my organisation, the strengthening of the relationship, you know, this, this is, uh, we've always had a, a very uh, long relationship, but this appointment, you know, is a testament to the enduring relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea. We share the same, you know, values and the uh, same idea of, you know, what we want our region to be like, you know, safe, secure and stable region. Uh, and I think for, for the Defence Force at the strategic level, it has a lot of value. It, 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 me going back, um, I'm able to bring that exposure here to bear on how we think and do things at the strategic level. 
Outgoing Deputy Commander of 3rd Brigade Lieutenant Colonel Ken Golder says Chief of the Australian Defence Force Angus Campbell approached his PNG counterpart last year to discuss the possibility of a military embed. Our relationship with the PNGDF from the 3rd Brigade perspective has been strong for a large number of years and this just cements that. There's broader things in the, in the Defence Strategic Review that gets after the Indo-Pacific. What we're talking about with Bonnie here is how do we strengthen our partnership with the 3rd Brigade Australian Army and the Australian Defence Force with the PNGDF uh, on a more tangible relationship person-to-person link is what I think what we're after on this one. Uh, he will be intimately involved with support and mentoring uh, the commanding officers of this brigade He's going to be influential in maintaining the, and strengthening the relationship not only with the PNGDF, but the Townsville community, the Townsville City Council, uh, the support and the community groups we have, the defence affiliated groups and the defence welfare groups here in Townsville. Head of the Northern Australian Strategic Pacific Policy Centre, John Coyne, says the appointment signals a cultural reset in the ADF's ongoing commitment to the Pacific. Look, Australia has invested um, for multiple decades in having uh, Pacific Islanders attend the Royal Military College Duntroon to, to attend to the Australian Defence Force Academy um, to develop their officers at a junior level. Uh, I think this sends a really powerful message and that message is on multiple levels. The first one is the maturity of our relationship uh, with the region. And that is, is that we're willing to be part of um, or have them be part of our Australian Defence Force. The second one is, is about, um, you know, in a lot of authoritarian states today, we see police and military all focused on protecting the government. One of the things that we share in common with the Pacific Islands nations is that um, our armed forces, our defence forces, our police are all about our nation and serving our people. And so the idea of bringing together a Papua New Guinean senior officer to be a deputy commander of one of our most important formations in the Australian Army and a key capability to the Australian Defence Force and the nation sends a powerful message about the shared values and role of armed forces. Unfortunately, fighting two decades of wars against terrorism has meant that we've had a very big focus um, within the Middle East and in countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, um, and that has often come at the cost of our near-neighbour relationships. I think this is a really good reset and shows a commitment by the Australian Defence Force, the Defence Organisation and the Australian Government to enhancing those relationships and getting them back to where they were. The appointment comes as Australia and PNG continue to hash out the details of a proposed bilateral security agreement, which was meant to be signed in June this year, but has hit several road bumps. And that's Rachel Merritt with that report. Staying with Papua New Guinea, who has hosted many senior foreign leaders in the last year for diplomatic and security talks. But this visit was a bit out of left field. Late last week, Hungary's first female president, Katalin Novak, travelled to Pitilu, a small island in Papua New Guinea's Manus province. Her journey was to reconnect with the children of a man who was adopted by a Hungarian missionary more than 90 years ago. Tekla Kunga reports. Wearing a Manusian necklace and headband, Hungarian President Katalin Novak is filmed dancing to the beat of the Karamut, surrounded by local women. It's a joyful welcome for a trip that's sombre in nature. The Hungarian president travelled to Pitilu, 
about 15 minutes boat ride from the Manus capital of Lorengau. Retracing the steps of the martyred Hungarian missionary Maria Molna. Miss Molna worked as a nurse on Pitilu from the 1920s. There she adopted a son, Stephen Lomon, about eight decades ago. Kelly Lomon is his son. Stephen was a sick person, he was a sick baby. So, about two years old, Maria Molna took. Miss Molna was among the Lutheran missionaries who came to Papua New Guinea after the First World War. She spent 15 years on Pitilu, treating the sick and preaching the gospel. Kelly's grandfather, Joseph Lomon, worked closely with Miss Molna and acted as an interpreter. He worked at her house as a as a cook or, you know, she, she look after her place. In 1943, Japanese warship Akikase arrived in Manus and took several missionaries, including Miss Molna, telling them they would be returned to their home countries. Everybody, all Petrus and all the Manusians took their boat and went to the warship to say goodbye to the, to the missionaries. When they went there, the Holy Spirit told my told Maria Mona that they won't arrive at Hungary. So she got the son, the Stephen, back and gave it to Lomon. Kelly Lomon said the missionary expected she would be killed, giving the young boy back to his father. Months later, the Lomon family and the people of Pitilu had that she and the others had died. They went and we never know where they went to. Later, we, like today, we know that all the Japanese, they were retired by the Japanese. The visit by President Novak was to reconnect with Stephen's children and present a church bell made in Hungary in honor of Miss Molna's time working on the island. She was a brave Hungarian Christian woman, and I am very proud to be the first Hungarian woman president and to follow the way of Maria Molnar by traveling 13,000 kilometers in order to come here and to meet you today. Hungary and Papua New Guinea don't have a significant economic or diplomatic relationship, but PNG Prime Minister James Marpe says he was thankful for the visit, hoping it would increase ties. Hungary has also offered university placements to a few dozen PNG students. She did indicate in what areas her country has special skills in, especially in waterway management, water management areas. Uh, we'll also work with her uh, ambassador in Canberra, who looks after PNG, to identify what we also need. And that's PNG's Prime Minister James Marape ending that report by Tikla Kungwa. 
Scientists have discovered two healthy underwater reefs surrounding Galapagos Islands, with one of them spanning 800 metres. These newly identified cold water reefs are situated at least depths up to 420 metres. Dubrovka Volata asked Associate Professor of Ocean Mapping Kathleen Robert from the Marine Institute at Memorial University in Canada how they made the finding. Over the last month, we were offshore Galapagos on board the research vessel Falkor 2. And the Falkor 2 is home to a remotely operated vehicle called Sebastian. And that robot is connected to the ship with an umbilical cord that allows the transmission of video data as well as power and has multiple video cameras around um, the vehicle as well as two arms. And when we're doing video surveys to look at the species that inhabit the deeper portion of the Galapagos platform, and we found a large uh, cold water coral reef approximately 800 meters long, and it was uh, dominated by a species uh, called Madrepora at about 350 meters in depth. Was that a surprise that you discovered these um, reefs? Because 800 meters in length, that's the equivalent of eight soccer fields, isn't it? It's definitely a good size reef. We had, um, so a member of our team had led a previous expedition a few months earlier to the Galapagos, and they had found the first large-scale reef in that area. And so we went to that area and mapped it to millimeter-scale resolution, and then we continued surveying areas they hadn't been yet, for example, on the western uh, side of the Galapagos Islands offshore of Fernandina Island, and that's where we found that uh, other large reef. And so how often is it that you find reefs in areas that have or have not been explored? Well, there's so much of the ocean that hasn't been explored yet. And for most of it, we don't even really know the depth of the ocean in great details. Um, So actually, once we start looking, we end up finding some pretty amazing discoveries. And that's part of the reason why two reefs in the Galapagos were discovered in the last few months. Um, There's probably quite a few others. And that's what's kind of amazing is how healthy these reefs looked. Tell me a bit more about these reefs. Can you describe what you found there in terms of um, the marine life? Yeah, so if anyone has ever seen shallow coral reefs, um, it's somewhat similar. We don't have quite as many different species of the hard corals in the deeper waters um, that tend to to live together. So, for example, these reefs that we found were called from a species called Madrepora, and that forms these zigzag shaped colonies of hard uh, corals and they grow on top of each other to form a reef and it's mostly in that case orange and then we have a few other colors of different other species for example we have another species called dendrophilia and that one is uh, bright yellow and then we have these other fans so they're not as hard they're very much like a fan and they they move uh, in the ocean and those can be all kinds of colors lots of pinks, uh, some purple, uh, and then we have all the other animals that are associated with these reefs. So very often we see brittle stars, 
all um, that have climbed on these corals. We see squat lobsters that are standing on top of these corals. We've seen quite a few different species of fish and a few different species of uh, sharks and skate. So I'm a little bit less of an expert in sharks and skates, uh, but um, there were people that were watching live because all of the dives of the Sebastians are streamed live. And they got quite excited about some of the shark species that were observed. Um, so they'll have to do a little bit more research and um looking at, at the video feed to know exactly what species they are. Uh, but it did look like we had um, some quite exciting uh, sightings of sharks. I think you also found some sea mounts in the area. Most of the ocean hasn't really been mapped, so we don't really know the depth. We have what we call satellite altimetry that gives us an idea of what the depth might be. But that's really just one measurement in a pixel the size of 500 by 500 meters, for example. So in two cases, we had these coarse pixels that seemed to say there was something shallower in that region. So we went with the ship and spent hours uh, mapping with a multi-beam uh, echo sounder. And a multi-beam echo sounder just works with the sound. So it sends sounds that travels down to the seafloor and bounces back. And then because we know the speed, of, uh, the speed at which sound moves in water, we can get to the depth. But instead of doing one measurement, it can do hundreds of measurements across the swath of the ship. And so we went back and forth, just like mowing the lawn. And as we do that, uh, we can see these seamounts uh, start to appear uh, on the seafloor. So those seamounts start from somewhere like 2,000 meters in depth, uh, and we're as shallow as 200 meters. What sort of significance do you think these findings have or will have? Well, one of the big uh, things is to really expand our understanding um, of the ocean to the entire ocean. There's definitely biases in certain areas of the world that have been uh that we understand the ocean better. And one area such as the Galapagos the, in the deeper portion, uh, we really didn't have that all that much information. And to really be able to understand how our ocean may uh, react into the future and how environmental conditions change, we really need to be able to understand all of the environmental conditions that currently exist. And so being able to observe uh, these deep ecosystems them in an area that uh, we didn't have information, uh, much information before really sort of helps broaden our understanding of cold water coral distribution. In terms of climate change, what sort of impact could that have on environment um, such as these? Um, so it's really about understanding what the, can, the different, the range of condition these species can live in. So for example, in the Galapagos, we were quite interested in looking at how um, the distribution of oxygen may have an effect on how different species, where they live. And so by able to understand that distribution, uh, we can have a better idea of, you know, how, if the conditions do change, if oxygen does change, then, you know, what kind of species may be located where. And that's Kathleen Robert talking to Dubrovka Volata. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look back at our main story today. Fiji's government has come under ceasefire over its decision to vote against a United Nations resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza-Israel conflict. You know, how can we say we are working towards a region of peace when uh, this humanitarian call, this call for a ceasefire, is voted against? Reverend James Bugwan, General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches. To find more of any of our 
story, simply head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, but I'll be back at 6am PNG time tomorrow. Stay tuned because news is next and coming up after that is Nisha Daily. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat.